Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Kira Evans, and this is a look back at some of the biggest stories from November and December of 2023, including an all-star show at the COVID inquiry, a shaky ceasefire in Gaza, some good climate news from COP28, and a big award for Taylor Swift. Grab a cup of something hot, put up your feet, and get up to speed on the seven biggest stories of the week. This is the standout seven from the Smart Seven. It's news, but not the news. You called ministers useless pigs, morons, pigs. That was from an email sent by Dominic Cummins, former chief advisor to Boris Johnson, which was read out at the COVID inquiry at the beginning of November. The official COVID inquiry has been quietly working away, interviewing all of the key figures involved in the pandemic, but it may be 2027 before we get to see a final report. The current module focuses on what went on in Downing Street during the early days of the pandemic. Tuesday saw a day full of swearing. In fact, it's a pity the inquiry didn't have a swear jar, as they'd have covered a significant amount of their costs. An inquiry heard from two of Boris's inner circle as they walked through the major events of 2020 with the dawn of the pandemic and the first phase of lockdown. Dominic Cummins in particular was scathing about his colleagues at the time and inquiry KC Hugo Keith wanted to know if he felt his own tone contributed to the overall lack of effectiveness of ministers. My appalling language is obviously my own but uh, my judgment of a lot of senior people was widespread. Johnson must have cringed as he watched descriptions of his incompetence as Cummins explained why everyone referred to him as a trolley and also his half-hearted endorsement from his former Director of Communications, Lee Kane. What will probably be clear in COVID, it was the wrong crisis for this Prime Minister's skill set, which is different, I think, from not potentially being up to the job of being Prime Minister. There was considerably less swearing as former Deputy Cabinet Secretary Helen McNamara testified, but she did point out that the Cabinet Office had made it extremely difficult for her to access emails or messages from her time there. She also described a toxic culture in Downing Street and said that women's perspectives were ignored, which may have had serious consequences for domestic violence victims during lockdown. She painted a picture of an underprepared and indecisive decision-making process as the pandemic began. I don't think we understood how serious COVID could be for certain people. I don't think we properly understood any of the serious consequences like long COVID, any of these things. A reoccurring theme in the inquiry so far is that far too much control was placed in a chaotic Downing Street while Parliament and regional infrastructure was ignored. London Mayor Sadiq Khan testified that the decision to exclude him and members of the Greater London Authority from Cobra meetings in early March meant that poorer and minority ethnic communities were unduly exposed to the virus. I can see no explanation at all why the Mayor of London, we weren't around that table. I think lives could have been saved if we were earlier. Michael Gove also put in a turn in the hot seat. He was the lead minister in the Cabinet Office as the pandemic hit and he made a personal apology to the victims and their families for the mistakes that the government made. As a minister who was also close to many of the decisions that were made, I must take my share of responsibility for that. Politicians are human beings, we're fallible. 
we make mistakes and we make errors. He testified that he thought the initial approach to testing was chaotic and that not enough attention was paid to the potential impact of lockdowns on children. The inquiry also heard messages from Gove and Dominic Cummins, with Gove warning that the government was effing things up and suggesting that if action wasn't taken, we'll regret it for a long time. However, he refused to blame his former boss for a delay in implementing the first lockdown. The Prime Minister at the time, Mr Johnson, was someone who found the idea of restricting free association deeply difficult. Then on Thursday, the 30th of November, the COVID inquiry finally came face to face with former Health Secretary Matt Hancock. His name has been mentioned over and over again as the inquiry has progressed, with accusations that he was a proven liar, that he was an inexpert but overenthusiastic, that he wanted to decide who should live and who should die, and that he didn't have a firm grip on his department. Hancock spent most of his time on the stand denying these allegations, pushing back against the notion that he was a liar and pointing the finger at what he referred to as a malign actor inside number. 10 who were created a toxic atmosphere. That clearly flipped over into an unhealthy toxic culture at the centre where anything that went wrong was seen as a almost intentional failure. Wednesday the 6th of December saw Boris Johnson finally turned up for his testimony and for possibly the first time in his life he was early. He arrived three hours before the scheduled start time presumably to avoid protesters and victims' families but he'd only just begun a long overdue apology when proceedings were interrupted. Can I just say how glad I am to be at this uh, inquiry and uh, how sorry I am for the, the pain and the loss and the suffering sit down. of please, the please stop. COVID Don't victims. Sit. Please sit down. His tone was markedly different to the way he behaved at the Privileges Committee. He spoke quietly and admitted to mistakes, including underestimating the scale and speed at which the pandemic was developing. He also said he regretted calling long COVID bollocks, but said he felt it was important to have a challenging atmosphere in number 10. He agreed that mass events like Cheltenham should have been stopped earlier, and he revealed that he had apologised to Helen McNamara for the language used about her by Dominic Cummins. He was also asked about his memorable description of former Health Secretary Matt Hancock. You yourself said, totally f***ing hopeless. I, I would say that my job was not to uncritically to accept that everything we were doing was good. Johnson said his own experience of COVID changed his view of the pandemic and he expressed his gratitude to the NHS. He was also challenged by a lawyer for victims' families who wanted to know about Boris's claim that the UK had defied gloomy predictions for mortality rates and he refused to accept evidence. To the contrary, much to the annoyance of those in the public gallery. I'm putting to you some cold steel of evidence. But I don't believe that your I think your I don't believe that your evidence stacks up. Okay. And I think and I think that well actually if you look at Could we just Pause, please, Mr. Weatherby, Mr. Johnson. He also came under pressure over Partygate and criticised the media portrayal of Downing Street as a travesty of truth, but did at least apologise for the offence that was caused. You know, if I had my time again, of course I'd have done things differently. I would have sent repeated messages round saying, you know, make sure that everybody can see that you're properly following the, the guidance. So, frankly, I think it was logistically impossible to, to do that. The last witness in 2023 was Prime Minister Rishi Sunak who faced the COVID inquiry on Monday the 11th of December as they continued with the Downing Street module. He was grilled for five hours on various aspects of the pandemic and gave a cautious performance saying several times that he wasn't able to recall meetings or other details. He also failed to provide his WhatsApp messages to the inquiry much like his former boss Boris. Rishi wasn't blaming faulty backups though. In fact he said he was never advised to save his messages from the pandemic and hadn't switched the WhatsApp automatic backup function on. 
I've changed my phone multiple times over the past few years, and as that has happened, the messages have not come across. I'm not a prolific user of WhatsApp in the first instance, and obviously anything that was of significance will have been recorded as one would expect. Things didn't go much better when it came to his pet pandemic project, the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which saw the then-Chancellor serving food to customers in a PR stunt that occurred mid-pandemic. He says that he was never advised that the scheme could have a risk of increased transmission and that he was considering it purely a fiscal measure. And in fact, he blamed the scientists for failing to stop him. I didn't believe that it was a risk. I believed it was the right thing to do. But if others are suggesting that they didn't, they had ample opportunity to raise those concerns in forums where I was or where the Prime Minister or others were, and they didn't. November saw UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warning that a war in Gaza has seen a killing of civilians that is unparalleled and unprecedented in any conflict he has witnessed since he began his role in 2017. At a press conference, he said it's clear that thousands of children have been killed and that a humanitarian ceasefire is an essential first step in getting aid to civilians in Gaza. With 1.6 million people displaced from their homes and seeking shelter, Richard Brennan, the Regional Emergency Director of the World Health Organization, said the poor sanitation was contributing to you public health risks. We could be on the precipice of major disease outbreaks. Uh, We're trying to address that as best we can, but putting in disease control efforts in these overcrowded, unsanitary contexts is incredibly difficult. Negotiations continue between Israel and Hamas and Qatar as all sides struggle to finalise a deal that would see a four-day ceasefire and a hostage exchange. It was hoped initially that the pause could begin on Thursday the 24th of November, but it was postponed for a further 24 hours as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made it very clear in a press conference on Wednesday evening that the war is not over and it will continue until Israel have achieved complete victory and eliminated Hamas. As details on the deal emerged, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak welcomed the plan to release up to 50 hostages, including women and children. This is something that we have consistently pushed for and is a crucial step towards ending the nightmare for families of those taken hostage in Hamas's terror attack and also addressing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The four-day ceasefire finally began on Friday morning with the hostage exchange taking place on Friday afternoon and the pause also allowed up to 300 trucks filled with food, fuel and aid to enter Gaza. Israel has vowed that when the ceasefire ends there will be at least another two months of fighting as they continue with their mission to eliminate Hamas. The UK's Foreign Secretary Lord David Cameron was in Israel on Thursday where he met with the Israeli Prime Minister and also travelled to Ramallah, the headquarters of the Palestinian Authority. He also visited a kibbutz where over 100 people were killed in the October 7th attack. The terrorism, children shot in front of their parents. I've heard things and seen things that obviously I will never forget and it's important we understand that. The initial four-day ceasefire then saw a series of extensions to the truce between Israel and Hamas, which allowed over 100 hostages to be freed, while over 200 Palestinian prisoners were also released. Red Cross Crisis Response Director Pascal Hunt described his experience helping convey the hostages from Gaza. I think it was an extremely emotional moment for the hostages. Uh, Suddenly they they see the Red Cross and they understand that soon they will be reunited with their families. It, It was really a true moment of of humanity. Negotiations continued in Qatar throughout the week which resulted in several extensions up to Friday morning with a negotiating delegation apparently including the head of Mossad and the director of the CIA, William Burns. This week saw the World Food Programme delivering food to over 120,000 people and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the truce has been important and that it needed to continue for as long as possible. It's a glimpse of hope and humanity 
in the middle of the darkness of war. And I strongly hope that uh, this will enable us to increase even more uh, the humanitarian aid to the people in Gaza. Israel says the hostages who've been released so far say that they've been treated poorly while in captivity. Island Levy, Israeli spokesman, said the Hamas continued to use video footage to spread their message of terror. The hostages were not held in reasonable conditions. Our children were serially abused. It continues to document its own atrocities, releasing footage of crowds terrorising the hostages in their final moments of captivity. Those scenes bringing to mind that scene from Game of Thrones. US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was back in Israel on Thursday as he worked to get guarantees from Prime Minister Netanyahu to protect Palestinian civilians before hostilities against Hamas resume. The Americans were requesting that Israel designate safe areas for civilians and avoid damaging any further hospitals or critical infrastructure. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered uh, these past weeks. And we want to do everything possible to prevent harm to them and to maximise the assistance that gets to them. However, Friday morning saw hostilities resume as Hamas appeared to fire a rocket into Israeli territory. Israel responded with airstrikes and what appeared to be a full resumption of hostilities. Former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett says Israel is making every effort to spare civilians, but that it's difficult when you're fighting a terrorist organisation. Hamas is, wants to stop the war in a cynical way by it effectively killing its own people by placing them in harm's way. If there were some magical solution where we could tweezer people out uh, and and just hit the, the rocket launcher that's shooting rockets at Israelis, we would do it. November proved to be a difficult month for Home Secretary Suella Braverman as she spent most of it in the spotlight as she sparred with the homeless and with the Met Police, prompting calls from all sides for her to resign or for Rishi to sack her. It started with comments she tweeted about the homeless describing people who live in tents on the street as making a lifestyle choice. She wanted to introduce a civil offence which would see charities fined for providing tents to homeless people, a move which has been criticised by both Labour and the Liberal Democrats. She spoke to Sky News to explain her concerns. We must make sure that we don't go down the same route as some cities in the US where living in a tent has become a lifestyle choice and with it has brought drug use, criminality and antisocial behaviour. Labour's Deputy Leader Angela Rayner said the homeless crisis is another example of failed Tory policies but PM Rishi Sunak was being very careful to avoid criticising the Home Secretary when the press caught up with him on Monday night. I don't want anyone to sleep rough on our streets. That's why the government is investing £2 billion over the next few years to tackle homelessness and rough sleeping. I'm pleased that the number of people sleeping rough is down by a third uh, since a peak but of course there's more to do. She also called for pro-Palestinian protesters to be jailed if they damage the cenotaph during a controversial Armistice Day march. Labour's Pat McFadden says Armistice Day should be respected. No demonstration should take place near these events or really around the the time of them. Anybody planning a march has to show respect for this important moment for the nation. And as the tensions ramped up over the planned protest, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had stern words for Met Police Commissioner Mark Rowley on Wednesday.
This is a decision that the Metropolitan Police Commissioner has made and he has said that he can ensure that he safeguards remembrance. Now, my job is to hold him accountable for that and we've asked the police for information on how they will ensure that this happens. It wasn't enough for Home Secretary Braverman though who wrote an article for the Times newspaper in which he accused the police of bias and of treating right-wing protesters with a stern response while pro-Palestinian mobs were largely ignored. The article was not cleared by 10 Downing Street and opposition parties were quick to call for Braverman and sacking. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer said it's up to Rishi to act. This isn't the way in which a Home Secretary should behave. The role of responsible governments is to reduce tension. He's got a a Home Secretary who's, who's out of control and he is too weak to do anything about it. Police estimated that at least 300,000 people attended the pro-Palestinian march, which passed relatively peacefully. There were, however, violent scuffles and arrests as far-right protesters turned up, presumably in response to Home Secretary Suella Braverman's increasingly dangerous rhetoric last week. She was busy tweeting again after the march, blaming both sides for causing trouble and calling for further action against what she called hate marches. Labour shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper said Braverman has only made the policing of the weekend's protests more difficult. The government made it harder for the police to do their jobs, including both in inflaming tensions but also undermining confidence and respect in the police exactly when both the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister needed to be backing the police. It was clear that Suella couldn't continue as Home Secretary. The question was how long Rishi Sunak would wait to act. The answer turned out to be not that long. Monday the 13th of November saw a dramatic series of cabinet moves in the PM's biggest reshuffle to date. First, he fired Home Secretary Suella Braverman although Number 10 were keen to point out she was being fired over language used and not for a clash on policy. James Cleverly was drafted in from Foreign Secretary to fill the Home Secretary vacancy and immediately pledged to stop the small boats. As the Home Secretary I'm absolutely committed to stopping the boats but also making sure that everybody in the UK feels safe and secure going about their daily business uh, knowing that the government is here to protect them. So far, so predictable. However, in an EastEnders-like moment of drama, David Cameron then appeared on Downing Street and strolled into number 10. The former PM was drafted as the new Foreign Secretary, which means he's also been given a seat in the House of Lords. That raised questions about how accountable he'll be to the House of Commons, with Speaker Sir Lindsay Howell already asking, how is this supposed to work? Cameron also has some ethical questions hanging over him around his role at the failed Grainsill Capital, but he said he's Team Rishi all the way now. I hope that six years as Prime Minister, 11 years leading the Conservative Party gives me some useful experience and contacts and relationships and knowledge that I can help the Prime Minister to make sure we build partnerships with our friends, we deter our enemies and we keep our country strong. That's why I'm doing the job and I'm delighted to accept. Tuesday saw Prime Minister Rishi Sunak gather his new cabinet for their first meeting, including his new Foreign Secretary and former Prime Minister Lord David Cameron. Rishi described his new cabinet as a strong and united team and early polling suggests that the public believe he was right to sack Home Secretary Suella Braverman. She came out swinging late on Tuesday evening with a bitter resignation letter in which she, without any sense of irony, told Rishi that your plan is not working and you need to make changes. She also called him weak and hinted at an agreement on policy between the two. And if Rishi thought that appointing David Cameron would solve his problems, Labour's shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves had a very different view. David Cameron, uh, when he stood in the general election in 2015, uh, promised stability. 
Well, I'm afraid since then, all we've seen in Britain is one crisis after another. Wednesday of that week saw the Supreme Court issue its long-awaited decision on the government's Rwanda scheme. The intention was to ship newly arrived illegal migrants to Rwanda to be processed and ban them from returning to the UK and it's already cost at least £140 million. The five members of the Supreme Court agreed unanimously with the lower courts that Rwanda could not be considered a safe country and the banning of migrants would put them at risk or at harm. Lord Reid announced the verdict. The changes needed to eliminate the risk of reformant may be delivered in the future, but they have not been shown to be in place now. The Home Secretary's appeal is therefore dismissed. The decision put Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in a difficult position as the Rwanda scheme was central to his plan to stop the small boats. He's pledged to end the merry-go-round of court cases and introduce both a new treaty with Rwanda and potentially new emergency legislation, which will effectively declare Rwanda safe and in theory allow flights to start in the spring. But that may be challenged in the European Court of Human Rights and he wasn't clear on what the plan would be in that case. If it becomes clear that our domestic legal frameworks or international conventions are still frustrating plans at that point, I am prepared to change our laws and revisit those international relationships. November was a difficult month for Ukraine. Their widely anticipated counter-offensive failed to make the quick gains that had been hoped for while the Israel-Hamas conflict diverted military aid and international attention. There was no sign of things improving in December either as Russia continued to apply pressure and ammunition supplies ran low but NATO chief Jens Stolenberg says it's important to support Ukraine through the tough times. We have to be prepared for bad news as well. Wars are phased but we have to stand with Ukraine in both good times and bad. This is a war of attrition, a battle for efficiency. Boosting munitions production is critical, and we are working hard to make it happen. The prospect of the US providing any more aid to Ukraine in 2023 seemed to be diminishing as the US Congress under new Speaker Mike Johnson has blocked any aid package which doesn't include spending on the US-Mexico border and changes in border policies. Democrats were not prepared to agree to that and there was hope that an appearance on Zoom by Ukrainian President Zelensky could change minds but he cancelled his appearance at the last minute. Speaking in the House of Lords, Foreign Secretary Lord Cameron says the UK will continue to to support Ukraine. I, I don't have the figure here for what 2024 will provide. All I can say is we are absolutely committed to continuing to support Ukraine at the level or even ahead of what we've done. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced his 2024 presidential campaign run in December. He's already the longest serving Russian leader since Stalin and will have spent 20 years in the role by the time voters take to the polls next March. He said he had no choice but to run again and speaking in the Kremlin he promised more combat against the West. People are hunted down and killed in the streets there. It's been shown all over the world. They are not just morons, but also neo-Nazis, obviously. They are ready for anything, ready to cooperate with anyone, just to harm Russia. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Zelensky hit the road staying in Argentina to witness the swearing-in of the country's new president, Javier Mille. The trip is part of a strategy to muster support for Ukraine amongst Latin American countries, as Zelensky's wife, Olena, says it's important for the world to keep focused on Ukraine. We cannot get tired of the situation, because otherwise we will die. And if the world gets tired, they will simply let us die. This danger that the aid will slow down 
constitutes a mortal danger to us. Meanwhile, Ukrainian diplomats were attending the EU Foreign Minister Summit in Brussels as they looked to accelerate their case for EU membership. The foreign ministers were meeting in advance of a full leader's summit on Thursday to decide on whether to open formal membership talks with Ukraine. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kulba says Ukraine has moved at speed to fulfil all requirements from the EU. And all key Venice Commission recommendations were implemented into Ukrainian legislation. So we, we can jump, we can dance if uh, that, is, uh, that is requested in addition. But I think that the game should be played fairly. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky was in Washington on Tuesday. He was hoping that a personal appearance would help to speed up the logjam in vital military aid for his country as Russia's war continues. Things didn't go well, though. He met with senators behind closed doors, but they remain unmoved as Republicans insist that any new aid package includes changes at the US border. Zelensky also visited the White House and met with President Biden, and he managed to find another $200 million for Ukraine. But it's increasingly clear that nothing major is likely to happen until at least the new year. Zelensky said the only beneficiary of the current impasse is Russia. Let me be frank with you, friends. If there's anyone inspired by unresolved issues on Capitol Hill, it's just Putin and his sick EU leaders gathered in Brussels to discuss Ukraine's EU membership application in mid-December. The application was blocked by Hungary's Viktor Orban, who said he didn't want to be part of a bad decision and cast doubt on the progress that Ukraine has made on the goals set by the EU. We have set up seven preconditions and three out of the seven is not fulfilled. So there is no reason to negotiate membership of Ukraine now. Orban eventually walked out of the meeting, allowing the other 26 members to proceed and agree to open accession talks with Ukraine. Orban wasn't finished objecting either as he later blocked a 50 billion euro EU aid package for Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stolenberg was continuing to back Ukraine, pointing out that Russia continues to pose a threat to the whole of Europe. If Putin wins in Ukraine, there's a real risk that his aggression will not end there. Our support is not charity, it is an investment in our security. Still to come on the Standout 7, the COP28 Climate Summit struggles to a conclusion and Taylor Swift celebrates 2023. Right after this... Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Welcome back. The COP28 summit in Dubai got off to a difficult start after the conference president claimed there's no science backing up the need to phase out fossil fuels. Sultan Ahmed Aljabur was found to have made the remarks at an online event three weeks ago, but during a keynote speech at the opening of the conference, he said it's important to restrict global heating to 1.5 degrees. We need to ensure that our plans and our uh, approach can cater for climate action while also ensuring sustainable socio-economic uh, development. The dual roles of the COP28 president, who's also the CEO of the United Arab Emirates oil company called Adnoc, caused real concern. And former US president and environmental campaigner Al Gore said placing Sultan Aljabar in charge of the summit may well have been a serious error. They have captured uh, the COP process itself, uh, abusing the public's trust 
by naming the CEO uh, of one of the largest and least responsible oil companies in the world uh, as head of the COP. After a shaky start, somehow the COP28 climate summit managed to get an agreement that called on all nations to transition away from fossil fuels. It followed a first draft that was universally rejected as too weak. And despite the urging of over 130 countries, the agreement did not specifically call for a phasing out or phasing down of fossil fuels. Sultan Algebra was quick to gavel through the agreement and praise those attending for their efforts. You did step up. You showed flexibility and you put common interest ahead of self-interest. There were complaints that the next text contains a litany of loopholes and that it doesn't go far enough to limit emissions as the planet sees the hottest year on record. The Samoan Pacific Climate Warriors activist Brianna Fruin had harsh words on the deal. They have given us flowers that will go on our graves. So how will you ask us to celebrate small wins, small incremental victories when we know those will just lie on the graves because we are not going to meet that 1.5 target. Argentina has a new president, but the bad news is he makes Donald Trump look sane and measured. He is Javier Mille, better known as El Loco, and he just won the presidency in a landslide victory. He's a far-right politician in the mode of Donald and former Brazilian President Herr Bolsonaro, both of whom greeted his election with delight. He is relatively new to politics with previous jobs, including performing in a Rolling Stones cover band and appearing as an economic pundit on TV. He's pledged to rescue Argentina from its current economic woes and drive leftists out of politics. If you think differently from them, they will kill you. That's the point. You can't give shit leftists an inch. If you give them an inch, they will use it to destroy you. You don't negotiate with trash, because they will end you. Wednesday was a big day for the Swifty in your life as Taylor Swift was named Times Magazine Person of the Year. OMG! She was up against stiff competition too, facing off Barbie, Vladimir Putin and every striking actor in Hollywood. Time magazine editor-in-chief Sam Jacobs says Tay-Tay won because she's the rare person who is both the writer and hero of her own story. She's had an amazing year of sellout shows while also taking firm stands on issues that matter to her and her audience. One of her many fans is Julia Roberts, who told Jimmy Fallon about her experience up close with the icon. I took my kids this was like our first big concert and Taylor had said before the show you know would you like to come up and I was like oh and then I said well can I get a Taylor Swift t-shirt to wear if I go on stage because I was wearing an outfit that I had worn like two days before on the Ellen show you've been listening to the small seven we'll be back tomorrow at 7 a.m hit that follow button and have a great day give us seven minutes we'll give you the world For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.